You're listening to Amplify, episode 12. That's music by Kevin O'Connell. His Ave de Passo, performed by Elizabeth Hilliard, Paul Rowe and David Bremner. And you'll hear from Kevin O'Connell in an interview we recorded with him during an event which CMC hosted at the New Music Dublin Festival at the National Concert Hall on the 1st of March. This is the first of two episodes which we're bringing you from New Music Dublin. Next week's episode will feature a selection of interviews with composers and performers recorded over the weekend. You'll hear now from CMC director Yvonne Ferguson who introduces this live recording of our podcast and who also hosts a discussion on diversity and new music with a panel of invited guests. That's around the 26 or 27 minute mark. So here it is and we hope you enjoy. You're very welcome along um, to this live recording of Amplify the podcast from the Contemporary Music Centre Ireland. I'm really delighted to see so many of you this afternoon. It's the only podcast dedicated to contemporary music from Ireland and to composers from Ireland. And we launched it back in October um, with thanks really to a kind grant from the Arts Council of Northern Ireland for equipment. Um, Today we have, I suppose you could say, a podcast of two halves. And for the first half, I'm going to hand you over to my colleague, Jonathan Grimes, who works very much on the podcast with myself and our colleague, Keith Fennell, who's in the corner. And Jonathan's going to introduce the first half of the podcast. And for the second half, um, I'll be back up and joined by a panel of uh, some great guests from around the world among our international delegates. So please welcome Jonathan for the first half. Thanks, Yvonne. One of the things that we wanted to do in this podcast is talk to composers and musicians and give them an opportunity to talk about their life and their work. And I suppose move beyond the five minute radio soundbite about their latest piece or project. And when looking through the program of New Music Dublin for this year, it seemed a no brainer to ask Kevin O'Connell to be our first guest for this live recording of our podcast. Kevin's work, as some of you may know, was featured in a concert by the Hard Rain Ensemble yesterday. And for as long as I I can remember, he has been a consistent and engaging voice in new music in Ireland. He has a number of new works coming up this month, and we're going to talk about these and a lot more besides uh, during the first half of this event. So would you please give a big welcome for Kevin O'Connell. So, Kevin, uh, as I just mentioned, you had an excellent portrait concert of your work yesterday by the Hard Rain Ensemble, which was, I guess, a belated celebration of your 60th birthday. 
Has reaching this age made you reflect more than usual on your life and work? I don't know about more than usual. Um, I, uh, composers are naturally reflective people anyway. Perhaps we spend too much of our time doing it in the first place. But uh, 60 is uh, an uncomfortably round number, shall we put it that way. And uh, one does... I mean, you're at a place where you're very likely looking back on more of your life than you are looking forward. Uh, up to about 50, you can delude yourself, but not really at 60. So it is a time for reflection and for pause, yes. Given that you've been consistently composing for over 40 years, are there still works or particular forms that you still feel you have to compose but haven't quite got the opportunity to write yet? Well, as you mentioned, I have some works coming up, Jonathan, including an opera. Now, this will be my fourth opera, so that sounds like a fairly healthy tally. But my last opera was over 20 years ago. So I had three opera commissions in the 90s and none since, except for this recent one now. So this is the way of composers. There's a lot of composers sitting in this room, they will tell you. Uh, it's a bumpy ride. Uh, sometimes you uh, get a good run of work in certain forms and then at other times not at all. But uh, this has been an interesting piece to collaborate on with the New York writer Lily Ackerman, who has been my librettist. And the RIAM Opera Department will be performing it and I'm looking forward to it. So you mentioned this new opera and let's, let's uh, stay with that for, for, for a moment. Um, it's it's called Dreamcatcher. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about this, this work and how it came about. I should mention that, like a lot of operas, um, that this is sort of like holding an ice cream. <laughs> Dark colored ice cream. We need, we, we, need, we need to get this with good sound from you. <laughs> um, the, sorry, I've forgotten the question now. <laughs> About your opera. Yes, the opera. Which isn't about ice cream. No, right. Um, the opera, Lily's idea for this opera, first of all, I will say it's a largely female cast. And because it's the opera department of a uh, you know, conservatoire that is doing this, you will find in singing departments across, I believe, the world that very often female students outnumber male about seven or eight to one would not be an uncommon ratio. So one really has to work a bit with that. But uh, the idea behind this opera, the two main characters are sisters. Uh, Polly is the slightly older one, Jane the slightly younger one. Uh, Jane codes for a living, she writes computer code. And she finds a way of being able to download her dreams, her dream life. And the older sister, who's a lot more sensible, um, finds this a rather risky endeavor and the thing becomes more and more involved as Jane becomes really absorbed into this other world which to some extent is simply a kind of metaphorical extension of the other world that we all now carry around in our pockets. Mm -hmm. We're all in this place, this cyberspace place and it's simply one or two steps further along the line from that for the purpose of artistic exploration, if you like. 
And, you know, you, met, you mentioned that change, that technological change, and that we're all car ca carrying this alternative world around in our pockets. Looking back again on your career as a, as a composer and, and, and sort of reflecting on all that change, what has changed for you in terms of your approach and your musical preconceptions, and what has stayed the same? Uh, obviously a bit of both. Um, when I look at some composers and see the kind of things they were doing, you know, at 14 they were listening to Pierre Boulez and, uh, you know, and, and performing Berg's Piano Sonata and things like this. Now, I wasn't precocious in that way. Uh, I taught myself composition starting when I was about 13 or 14 out of books in the library. Uh, King Palmer, Teach Yourself Composition. You know, recently I bought a copy of it. Yeah. Again, just to find out where I started from. And actually, in terms of general advice, it's not a bad little book, uh -huh. you know. Um, but uh, so I, I sort of, coming from a kind of provincial background in Derry, but it's a city with a very vigorous musical life for a small city. Um, in some ways, it was an intriguing place to grow up, particularly at that time, of course. And I sort of made my own way I went for piano lessons. My school A-level music teacher was a composer, Redmond Friel. Uh, so, you know, the idea of having, a, uh, you know, a composition teacher who was a composer was, you know, nothing exceptional to me. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know he was your actual school he teacher. Was, he was my A-level music ah, teacher. Okay, because yes. he is in your biography that you studied Indeed. composition with yeah. Redmond Friel. But, Indeed. Oh, okay. Yeah, fond memories of him. Uh, Old style gentleman. He turned up to every class with a shirt and tie. Mm. Yeah, mm. named his children after characters in the Wagner operas. He had a daughter called uh. Isolde. <laughs> I mean, it was it was that that world. Yeah, you know? <laughs> and um, fun memories. Yeah. So just staying with with the, your your uh, your childhood or early years in in Derry. I mean, how how did living there? Because obviously there was much change and lots of historical political events that happened uh, during during that time how did that impact or shape your musical development do you think i hardly thought about it much at the time because while i mean there were thousands of armed british soldiers the police were armed i mean you regularly had bombs going off and uh, i remember one of the biggest bombs that the ira planted in the history of the troubles outside the Derry Tech, where my father taught electrical engineering. Um, I was standing about a mile from that bomb when it went off, and I, looked, I remember looking up, and I thought, what is that stuff flying towards me? It was bits of the car that the bomb was ignited in. I had to do some fast running. I was a fast runner when I was 15, faster than I am now. But at that time, you needed to be. Yeah. And I suppose the thing about... Uh, composers, I mean, any people of my generation in Northern Ireland, the one thing we can say is that we're probably the only composers in Western Europe, I wouldn't speak for the whole of Europe, but in Western Europe, who have grown up with some sense of what armed conflict is about. Mm. And inevitably that has a shaping influence. I think more about it now than I did then, because then I took it for granted. When you're young, you do, you know. Was music a kind of refuge for you? Yes, I believe it was in many ways, uh, especially growing up in a large family. It was just my way of escape. 
and escaping into the front room of the house where the piano was and you know, I could practice for four or five hours at a stretch. It was my, it was a, a wonderful world, alternative kind of world to have. Mm. Yeah. yeah. In just preparing for this interview, I, I came across an article that you did with Michael Durbin around the time of your, your first symphony, um, uh, which was in 2011. And we'll talk about the, 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 those, uh, the symphony and the, and, the, and the string quartet and your approach to forms in a minute. But I was very struck by uh, a thing that you had said, that you had decided to become a composer age, 50, uh, age 17 after listening to Bruckner's Eighth Symphony, which you listened through all through the night several times. Yes. And it was the first time I discovered his music. Uh, you have, every musician probably has moments of revelation in their lives where they just encounter a piece or some piece of music that has a kind of revelatory impact. And that was like a brainstorm. And, uh, you know, I think that I actually decided on composition actually well before that. But that was certainly a rite of passage, discovering that and other pieces like it. Mm-hmm. So... Throughout your career, you, you've always approached writing for particular forms with, with a sense of reverence. And you wrote your first string quartet when you were 40. Yes. And you wrote, as we've just been discussing, your first symphony when you were 52. Are you always conscious when composing of being part of or building upon a tradition? Well, I suppose I am. Tradition is a bit of a nugatine word. You know, it's kind of soft and chewy, so I don't like to use it very much. But the reality of tradition, of you know, being a link in the chain, a feeling that you've come from somewhere. For example, to take another composer, say someone like Webern, who was an important composer when I was a student, but I find students now, they can hardly spell his name, you know, they don't know who he is. Mm. Um, but I've been getting back into him lately, and when I get into a student, you know, uh, to, a, to, a, to, a, to a composer, you know, I become a student again. I do piano reductions of all his orchestral works. I've just finished a while ago the Variations for Orchestra, Opus 30, uh, which you can, in a piano reduction, you can fit it all on one A3 page, by the way, if you make the print small enough and have good eyesight. <laughs> For a man of my mature years, my eyesight is still pretty good, I'm glad to say. But um, that this, I don't really think of old music and new music. To me, if it's, I mean, we're going to talk about setting the mass, I believe, in a moment. Well, Guillaume de Macho, I mean, he was around quite a number of years ago. But when I sit down to set the mass, I feel I'm doing what he was doing. I don't feel separated by some great historical gulf where he did it that way and I'll have to do it this way, yeah? Um, And since we're on this subject, I may say that, you know, in modern music, for want of a better word, the way in which we constantly have to uh, market ourselves, as, as it were, as new or contemporary or modern or hyper new, um, that sometimes bothers me Mm. because... I feel that it's just an endless um, adventure, writing music, and that we're the latest chapter in the story. But there are chapters that are going to come after us, and they'll change everything again, Mm. yeah? 
And that's my sense of, of it. So you, you feel part of a continuum and, and connected with a Western classical music tradition? I do. I mean, I most certainly do. And, you know, I believe that you've got to add something new. Uh, something new in the sense of something that is personal to you and something that people have to come to your music to find that they can't quite find somewhere else. If you're not doing that as a composer, there's really almost no point. Mm. And this becomes a point of contention or argument with students because they will bring you in maybe very good sort of pastiche music and you say, look, Joe or Joanna, you know, this is beautiful, but Chopin has actually done this a lot better. Mm. So what, what do you want to do? Mm. Yeah? Mm. Um, and it's guiding people, guiding yourself, for heaven's sake, towards finding an angle, a fresh approach, that, as I say, people sort of have to come to you for that. Yeah? Mm. I wanted to... to you mentioned teaching, and yes. I wanted to come to that. And uh, as well as as well as composing, you you've been very active as a as a teacher of composition. You're head of composition at the Royal Irish Academy of Music, so it's I guess it's a pretty major part of your life and has been for some time. Um, what are the sorts of changes have you that you've seen in, in relation to students and their their approach i mean is it are the students that are coming in now in terms of their 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 musical ideas are they the same that they were maybe 13 14 years ago no that's changing all the time and changing in interesting ways i think that i mean the best thing i can compare it with is when i was starting out yeah and i feel that at the time myself and composers of my age, like, you know, Fergus Johnson, for example, who's been premiered at this festival. Uh, Fergus and myself were in the same class at Trinity. Uh, when we started out, there probably was a more unified idea of what a young composer should do, what kind of piece should you write. If you're being premiered at a contemporary music festival, how, how will you fit in by doing a certain kind of piece? Now, that has its own dangers, of course, because it can result in a certain epigenism, if that's a word, and, you know, simply getting some credentials in terms of what is already being done. But the advantage of it was, I mean, we all learned how to manipulate 12-tone rows at that time. We all learned how to uh, do rhythmic and motivic manipulations and all the rest of it. So there was still some degree of a kind of common grammar shall we say. I think that the big problem for young composers now is, I mean, this week it's experimental, you know, try and get any sound out of the instrument that you can invent. Next week it's writing an F major, that there isn't that sort of sense of magnetic north for them now, and they can find it very disorienting. Quite why that is. Obviously, the culture has become a bit more complex in many ways, a bit more mixed up with different kinds of music, uh, partly through the influence of technology. But I think that it uh, can be more difficult now, actually, for young composers. So it's more of a challenge for a, a young composer to, to find his or her pathway in terms of where they, where they want to go? It may well be, yes. But, of course, you know, the strong talents will, sooner or later, mm -hmm. yeah. 
And I mean, by all means, when you're young, try different things and experiment. But my old feeling about composition, and again, perhaps it's a rather traditional view, is that you're better to find something, preferably when you're young and have a bit of time ahead of you, that you feel you're good at. It's generally a couple of things, you know, mm. that you're strong in, and go with those and try to develop them. Uh, I mean, one of the things I think that you've got to learn as you go along is that you can't do it all as a composer. Yeah, million things I would like to do, mm. million things I would like to be better at, but you got to focus um, and, and, and try to, it's difficult enough, you know, if you confine yourself to your strengths um, uh, and, you know, without sort of wandering all over the place. So uh, there's a balance to be struck, I think. Do you think you'd be a different composer if you didn't teach? That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure I would, because when I listen to early pieces, I mean, it's sometimes painful, and people do take them out and play them again, and I'm duly grateful. But I sit there and think, oh dear, Kevin, what were you thinking of? Um, but underneath, you know, the bad technique, the derivative patches and all the rest of it, I, I think I have remained sort of the same composer, mm. yeah? Mm. And there are composers who are, have a magpie-like thing. They need to be flitting around the place a bit. And Stravinsky was a bit like that, yeah? Um, I think that I'm not really like that. Uh, there are things I wanted to explore all along. I flatter myself that maybe I'm getting a bit better at them. Others may disagree. But for better or worse, those are the kind of formal issues uh, the uh, the expressive issues in the music that I want to try and uh, uh, to try and accomplish something in. We're shortly wrapping up. I've got the five minute sign from Keith here, uh, so I wanted to turn to your mass in the Irish language and the yes. setting of mass, which you mentioned um, uh, earlier, and this mass will be broadcast on TV on St Patrick's Day. Uh, and this is your second mass. Yes. The first was written in 2015. And um, I and and this and and you haven't previously set any masses before this, before 2015. So what are the reasons for the recent focus on the mass as a form? Well, I suppose uh, the commissions is the the simple answer to Follow that? Follow the money. No one, well, the money, yes. But uh, you get asked to write pieces. And uh, it just so happens that two masses have come along in quick succession. Um, one of them in Latin, as you say. Uh, one in Irish, the, the most recent. It's a fascinating text to take on. And it's got so much musical baggage with it at this stage. I mean, going right back to the plain chant, if you even want to go on back uh, beyond uh, Masho. So it's the masses I have written, uh, insofar as one can describe ones in music, I would say that they're rather austere in their musical language. Not, 
hyper-demanding in the sense of being terribly modernist in their style or whatever, because both of these masses have been used in a liturgical context. They have both been sung as an actual celebration of the mass, though they've both been done in a concert environment as well. But if you're setting the mass liturgically, you do have to fit in to the actual sacrifice of the mass. That's primary, and the music, while you give it your best, is in a sense secondary. So it's, it's, this, it's this combination of things. There are a number of factors that have to be taken into consideration, which it's not like writing a symphony or a quartet in that sense, where you're simply answerable for your own thing. Yeah. And is that a challenge to do, to have to, to step back from that? And, and it is somewhat, yes. Because naturally you want to let loose and do your own thing, yeah? But I don't feel in setting the mass, at least not liturgically, that you should do that. Uh, I think that there should be a degree of restraint. I feel that there should be a degree of solemnity. I don't think you really do a setting of the mass to entertain people. Uh, it's not the right approach, and I don't think it's the right thing. Mm. in the context. You want to make it as significant or as beautiful as you can, yes, but uh, maintaining the correct tone, if that's the right word I'm looking for. So final question. From your perspective of teaching young and up-and-coming composers and your position of somebody who has been composing for a long time, if you were to pick one issue facing composers today that you'd like to see change for the better, what would that be? Well, I think that there is an issue now with performance opportunity. There seem to be a lot more composers now than there were when people of my age were starting out. That could be wrong. CMC would be the best people to talk to about that rather correct. than a composer. Yeah. And, and, you know, the number of orchestras has not grown. The number of chamber choirs actually has grown, but not exponentially. We've got at least three very regular ensembles now on the island, and that's a good thing, of course. But it worries me with all these young composers that they're going to be competing heavily for uh, basically the same opportunities. I think while things were a bit rougher and readier, those years ago when I started out, I fancy we had a bit more elbow room as well mm. than composers now do. So one would hope that that can be rectified. Okay, that's a, a portal into a subject that could go on for a long, long time. But we have to finish there, I'm afraid. So thank you very, very much, Kevin, for your time and for your music and belated happy birthday and the best of luck with the opera and the mass and everything else that you do in the coming months and years. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for having me. For the second half of our podcast this afternoon, we're going to focus on diversity in new music. And I'm joined by a panel 
to uh, help us tease out some aspects uh, of this area. And uh, among the panel are some of our international delegates who are here. Uh, we have hosted a number of uh, venues, programmers and festivals from across the world, and also our colleagues from Swedish radio as well, and uh, Slovenian radio who just went home this morning, unfortunately. And um, delighted that uh, a number of panelists will join me for this discussion. So panelists, if you'd like to take your uh, seats, and uh, I will uh, let you introduce yourselves. Hello, uh, I'm Amanda Feary. Uh, I'm a composer, and I'm also a lecturer at the Royal Irish Academy of Music. Um, I just had a premiere, so I'm a bit spaced out, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> um, and other than that, I'm currently working on getting an opera off the ground, which I'll be working on for the rest of the year and into 2021 as well. I'm David Pay, and I'm the artistic director at Music on Main, a concert series in Vancouver that also has a festival of new music called the Modulus Festival. And while I didn't have a premiere, I can share your sort of spaced out feeling, having you know eight hour time difference and listening to you know six, seven concerts a day and going to meetings. So it'll be nice just to chat about all yeah, this. Absolutely. Uh, my name is Eve O'Donnell. I'm also an Irish composer. Um, but my role here today is as an international delegate, and I work at National Sawdust, which is a music venue in Williamsburg. I'm, I'm John Harris. I'm Festival Director of New Music Dublin. And uh, do you want to know more? And, <laughs> and. Oh, I live in Scotland. Um, I, uh, I, have, I was born in London. I'm entirely Welsh. All my grandparents are Welsh. Um, and uh, I think that's about it, really. Okay. And co-artistic director of Red Note. Oh, yes, I'm a co-artistic director of Red Note and a composer as well. Fantastic. So I think, Dave, is it only you and I that aren't composers on this panel? It seems feeling, to be mm, Feeling very intimidated. <laughs> <laughs> um, just to start on this, and I suppose we, we had a discussion about this yesterday in terms of diversity being policy of your organization or your festival or your venue, or diversity being the culture of your organization. And so I am going to start with you, Eve, because... For National Sawdust, really, diversity is at the core. It's what you're about. It's your raison d'etre of, of the venue. I completely, yeah, absolutely. And I can speak to that by saying that the things that we have at the core are openness, diversity, inclusion, and trying to create impact in our community through those, through that lens. Um, I think if you take a look at us as an artist incubator, you can see that throughout our programming. Um, whether it be working with artists in residence in the space, general programming, whether it's our touring wing. We also have a recording label and also we have a, an online publication that's called The Log. So the way that we inform the things that we do is to take a lens of diver diversity by looking at our community, seeing what they, what they need and being able to give resources to that community, community to be able to help people to move forward in their careers at the time that they need it. Um, the reason that we've been kind of successful in being able to do that is because we're an emerging venue as well. We're a new venue. Um, so I think that we've had the great opportunity to be able to grow into our community. And tell tell us, that when you helpful. say your, your community, I mean, Williamsburg, that's in... Brooklyn in New York. Yes. And so we're talking about a community that has very diverse ethnic, cultural heritage backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds. Totally, yeah. So the ones that I think that I specifically get to work with are the gender um, through the mentorship, emerging composer mentorship initiatives that um, I manage. 
Um, however, you know, we have to look at everything from age, from cultural heritage to race, um, economic background as well. And so as, a, as an organization, we have to take in the full scope of the picture. Um, but I'd be very happy to speak about the mentorship initiatives that I, that I manage, if you yeah. like. Yeah, we'll yeah. come back to those because they're very powerful. Uh, initiatives and they're very well known I think among uh, the Irish contemporary music community because a number of our composers have been successful in them as well and we can we can talk about that. Dave I'll just come to you um, for a moment. Uh, I know Music on Main um, begun in 2006 and that really from the outset that you were concerned as artistic director with equality. Yeah in 2006 I started programming with a goal of having 50% female headliners, which remains unusual. And we don't always meet that target. Sometimes we think we do, and then we go back and it's not quite there when we look at the data. Um, and in 2006, the world is changing so quickly and the conversations around diversity and equity are, are changing almost monthly and how we define them. And we define them differently across different countries and even different regions of countries. Um, but when we started out in 2006, we had this goal of 50% female headliners. And I didn't tell anyone about it. It was just sort of like what we're working on in behind. Because I also feel like I, I hate the two words female composer going together. Because mm -hmm. the only time I'll say male composer is when there's only male composers to draw attention to it. But this idea of othering a gender, like let's just make space to show that women are great composers. And let's make space for girls to see that they can also become composers. So it's very much the culture of your organization. And I suppose move, moving slightly on from the gender, because I suppose most people would be aware that at the moment in Canada, the reconciliation process or, or issue is very current. How, how have you dealt with that? Or how, how has that kind of influenced or, you know, your thinking in terms of programming or your projects? Reconciliation around the uh, indigenous lands of Canada, which were stolen, which weren't um, most, there aren't treaties for most of the land in Canada. And on the west coast of Canada in Vancouver on the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh and Musqueam Nations, which is where I live, um, we haven't, we haven't, you know, cracked this uh, idea of reconciliation. And we're in a really fraught moment in Canada where it's changing constantly. So many people are speaking about reconciliation being dead. Many indigenous people say reconciliation is dead. And yet we, as a settler, you know, I want to work towards reconciliation and a kind of equality. We do land acknowledgements before every concert. Um, they sometimes become problematic depending on the the role or the route you take in your land acknowledgements when you acknowledge that for more than 10,000 years, the land that we live and work and play on in Vancouver are the Musqueam, the Tsleil-Waututh and the Squamish lands, and that they are unceded territories. So we have issues around that uh, and de um, desires to help express that. When it comes to the programming, I want, we have a goal of 5% um, Indigenous performers to represent 5% of the population in Canada by 2223, or Indigenous performers or creators. And I don't know if 5% of Indigenous composers and creators in Canada are making this kind of music that we present at Music on Main. Yeah. And so do we change our programming to show the, the real contemporary voices of Indigenous people in Canada I'm not an expert in this other programming, and I fear that we'll retain a kind of colonial stance mm -hmm. to this when we sort of say, oh, well, you should write a string quartet. 
And there's, for me, yeah, a great concern about perpetuating colonization or a colonial mindset through new music and through thinking that new music is somehow superior to other forms of cultural expression. Mm -hmm. Definitely a challenge. Um, we have our own challenges, Amanda, here at home. Perhaps we don't have the ethnic diversity in our society that some of our international delegates speak of, mm -hmm. but we very much do still have the gender balance issue to mm -hmm. uh, do a lot. I mean, a lot of work has been done um, by Sounding the Feminist and, and Contemporary Music Centre involved in a research project that most a lot of people would know of um, in partnership with Sounding the Feminist to, to look back at commissions over the last 20 years. And, but, you know, really, this is the start of a long-term process for all of us mm -hmm. that are passionate about contemporary music on this island. Mm. Um, I suppose I have been thinking, as a lecturer, I've been thinking about what I can do in education. I think it, it needs to, I mean, the conversation there needs to be happening at all levels primary and post-primary and third level. Um, I guess when I think of my own composition community, I mean, yeah, we're largely white. Um, we're largely middle class. Um, and a lot of us have the same musical training and went to the same universities and studied similar syllabus and the same music degree, master's programs, etc. Um, so I think there's a lot that can be tackled within those spheres, I think. And that's what I'm trying to do in my teaching. It's, I mean, it's a very tall order to dismantle um, the, the historical narrative of, you know, um, what's in the textbooks, mm -hmm. um, which is you know, they're largely male composers. They're the, the resources that are easy to just find very quickly. What I've found in teaching is that I'm, I'm trying to look beyond that and it's, it's, it's more difficult to find those resources. But, but, but the people that are in front of you in your class, mm -hmm. they've, they've, they've come so far and they're lucky to be in front of you in the class. But if we talk about sort of socioeconomic background, we're... There's a big gap. We were talking about this mm -hmm. yesterday, as, as you, and as you say, you know, mm -hmm. most people, middle class, coming to the Academy of Music or universities, we're not really tackling, um, I suppose, you know, the, a broad range of socioeconomic backgrounds to bring no. them into composition, are we? No, and I feel like um, when I talk to younger composers, and I don't mean young in age, but maybe com composers of any age starting out, that it, they might introduce themselves by saying where they study. And I think mm. that's kind of a telling um, sort of thing because I'm not really interested in where they're studying, but I think they feel like they have to say that. Um, mm -hmm. And also that they feel like they have to pursue that path. Um, I was talking to other composers over the last few weeks. I can't think um, off the top of my head of a self-taught composer you know as much as the community that I know and that I'm in touch with and we've all kind of pursued the same mm. path 
Do, do you find um, this in Scotland, John? You know, young composers, emerging composers that are sort of on the radar of Red Note Ensemble. Do you, do you find that they have come through conservatoires, academies, university departments? They're saying who they, they studied with? Yes and no. Okay. I mean, it's difficult. It's, it, we don't have the kind of developed scene. I mean, Ireland is quite a um, lucky place. It has quite a developed higher education scene in that regard. You have a lot of composition departments. Um, we have a number in Scotland. I mean, there's the, the Conservatory in Glasgow, and then there's Glasgow University, Edinburgh University, Aberdeen University. I think that's it. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, when I say I'm self-taught, I end up as a mature student at the gates of the Conservatoire now in Glasgow, but having worked as a composer professionally for like six, seven years. Mm -hmm. And I only went to get a, a, a degree or a master's in it because I failed to get a job because I wasn't qualified. They interviewed me and they said they wouldn't give me a job because I wasn't qualified. I guess it's an excuse. That's obviously rubbish. But, you know, um, it's, it's that sort of... Um, I, think, I think the problem... Well, yeah, we can speak to all the kind of diversity issues further down the line, I guess. Yeah, well, well, I suppose the reason why we kind of invited you back um, on the podcast, Amanda was on the very first podcast, John was on the podcast about six weeks ago, and you spoke about a particular approach, I think, that is it Creative Scotland has yeah. with regard to funded clients of Creative Scotland, which is uh, your version of the arts concept. Yes, I mean, I, the thing is, I mean, actually, sitting with this panel, I find it slightly, I feel I'm slightly overawed. I've spoken with David before, because the conversation in Scotland is so far behind the conversation yeah. in Canada and the States. Um, you know, I, I was in Canada fairly recently, and I find the, even if you feel like the conversation is unsatisfactory, David, it is just being had properly, um, and the words may change all the time, and the negotiations and the privileges and all the rest of it are negotiated continuously. You know, I've, I've worked with, with sort of um, Marjorie Chan at Theatre Pass Mariah and all these kind of things, and these, things, these issues are forefronted all the time. Um, in Scotland, there's an interesting piece of le legislation that came in, um, which turned up about f four or five years ago in Creative Scotland, and it is uh, EDI, Equality, Diversity and Inclusivity. And for every regularly funded organisation like Red Note Ensemble, you have to have what's called an EDI plan. And, and rather than saying, so there's 13 legally protected characteristics, which include things like, well, um, gender, uh, race, ethnicity, um, uh, whether you're pregnant or not is another one, um, high index of multiple deprivation. We have this wonderful thing in Scotland called the Scottish Index of Multiple Deprivation, which tells you how deprived somewhere is. Um, uh, and what they do in Creative Scotland is they don't tackle all 13, or however many there currently are, take five or four or three that you know you can do something about, mm -hmm. set a plan and a target and tell us over the year what you're gonna do about it. Mm -hmm. um, and Red Note's evolved ways of working with particular groups, so multiple disabled people and people from um, uh, sort of um, very t rough and tough socio socioeconomic backgrounds. So we've chosen five, our five are socio socioeconomic deprivation, gender obviously, because the gender balance issue in music is terrible, um, race, ethnicity, multiple deprivation and age, so young people and old people. And we have specific ways of working with them and make our plans um, according to that. And we actually end up building our entire business plan around our EDI plan because it seemed like such an incredibly important integrated mm -hmm. thing to do. Mm -hmm. It's also backed up a lot of research. And one of the things I had an interesting question for you mm -hmm. actually was to ask, you know, yeah. when, when you talk about your community, how do you know what's there? And how do you know whether you're reaching the people that you want to reach? Because um, yeah. that's one of the key things yeah. for us. Actually, I did, being a scientist by background, I didn't just want to kind of go in with both big feet and go, hey, I reckon I can fix it. You know, I'm a straight white bloke from 
England. You know, I'm sure I can sort this stuff out. But actually, I want to know, you know, to start off with what the stuff was that needs to be sorted, you know. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's a good question. Eve, you're, you're, I mean, you're, you're very yeah. much, yeah. Well, I think that what we've done is we've, you know, we've listened to our community that has been interacting with us. And we kind of built our systems around those people who are already working and making profound work. So we're trying to provide support systems to the artists that are already working. Um, and that was where we started from. But then we're able to build initiatives to support um, the maybe underprivileged or people who we see the voices are underrepresented, um, underrepresented. And really, that was spearheaded by our artistic director um, and in support from uh, various funding organizations like the Tolman organization in the US have done amazing, given us amazing support to be able to create initiatives that will support emerging composers. Um, we've also recently started one with partnership organizations, um, educational organizations. One is a, quite a, an amazing organization. The Juilliard School is supporting one of our emerging composer represent, um, organ, um, our emerging composer initiatives. Um, so we've done a lot of work to do the outreach to try and see what our community needs. However, we're operating in a kind of a cultural hub where there's a lot of already established artists, whether they have had incredible support from an economic background, um, or whether they're doing it for themselves, and whether they have had no formal training, and maybe their approach to music is um, through the electronic medium, or it's a grassroots um, collaborative uh, community that they've grown up in, um, and the way that they're presenting music and bringing it to their audience is in a completely different way than we would see in the classical um, educated sphere. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, one of the things that we did on our Hildegard composer competition was we yeah, eliminated yeah, some of the barriers yeah, yeah. that were in front of composers when they want to engage with competitions or with organizations um, so that they would be able to, so I'll tell you what we did. We took away the fees and we took away the letters of recommendation for those composers. And we asked them, you can submit recordings of your work or you can submit scores and we will bring them to the, our panel of judges and we'll be able to connect the dots on how we could best benefit you with the resources that we have. So I think that that was one of the things that we chose to do to be able to engage with that audience, particularly, um, to get engage with that community. Um, and I think it's benefited us because we now see a wider range of different types of people who will come to us. What excites me so much about how you describe that okay. is that we're talking about dismantling. And I think sometimes there are people who, like we all love this music so much. We love classical music, we love contemporary music. And when people hear us talk about dismantling, they think we're trying to dismantle the art. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to dismantle the barriers. And so to go to young composers and say, yes. what are the barriers for you to have better opportunity and to dismantle those barriers? Because I, I know everyone I talk to who's yeah. committed to diversity is because we believe in equity and we believe in equity because we believe that all people have the possibility to be excellent. And if we're not listening to most of the voices, then we're not going to get all of the excellent art. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting pieces that came out of the research that we had done was that actually, because we did a lot of research amongst people who had arts non-attendance from very underprivileged backgrounds, 
And we, you know, we played them really hardcore stuff, you know, the kind of thing that people say, oh, they'll never go anywhere near it. To a human being, they all absolutely love the music. The reason they don't go are social. It's absolutely nothing to do with whatever the music is. It's actually to do with how we, how we bring people in or take it to them or the rest of it. You know, there's kind of nothing wrong with music. There's everything wrong with the social situation it's made in. Mm-hmm. Well, we talked about this a little bit yesterday when we, we had a coffee that, you know, that this is totally linked with the audience. So, you know, diversity in, in artists that are being presented and the diversity in the audience then, because it comes back to the you can't be what you can't see kind of idea that, that you referred to, Amanda, and that you're trying to change within your classes. Can you tell us, Eve, about the Blueprint um, initiative as well? Absolutely. Well, I think that to start to talk about the Blueprint, which is a composer-mentor initiative, you kind of need to um, bring in the Hildegard competition first, because we started that one first because we saw the need for the underrepresented voices, which were female, non-binary, and trans. Um, so that, through that, we were able to engage with emerging composers. One of them, which is a nice mention, was um, one of an Irish composer. The first one was Emma O'Halloran, who's an important voice. Um, and we modeled our Hildegard composer competition um, to go into its second year, where we have another Irish voice, which is Inti Figuswiswete, who her piece was performed in Crash earlier, along with Amanda's. And also this year, we have Amanda as one of our finalists. So <laughs> Irish composers are everywhere. <laughs> um, but through that model of providing a space for these voices, giving them resources, um, adding them to mentorship, Um, that makes sense for them at the time that they're in now, we were able to use the same model for our Blueprint Fellowship. And then that has given us the foresight to be able to see, well, we've actually got a lot of other resources, like among our executive team. So we're starting to build professional development sessions that we're working with the Blueprint team and the Juilliard School to identify that we can then share with the rest of our community. Um, so I think that to go back to what you had mentioned about how do we, um, as artists ourselves, how do we aspire or who it is that we, the, when we look to what we're going to be in our future, we don't have to look like the person Mm -hmm. or sound like the person that we want to become. Um, and I think that well, hopefully the idea is that by making that community bigger that we can give these different voices that opportunity. Mm -hmm. So Amanda, when you saw the application or the call for applications for Hildegard, Mm -hmm. um, immediate attraction to apply? Um, Yeah, there were a couple of different reasons. Um, The one reason was the um, panel, the the selection panel. Um, It rotates every year it has um yeah there's been yeah we have different same familiar a couple of familiar people each year but it Mm -hmm. has rotated yeah this is important that the selection panel is their credentials there that it's a diversity among the panel right yeah that's what you're saying and yeah i mean we could talk about this for longer but i think that's really important not just for initiatives like that but you know funding panels if it um programming panels if it's the same panel every year you're you're 
you know, for a program, you say your curatorial vision is just not maybe going to expand mm -hmm. as much. Also, the, the panel is so diverse mm -hmm. in itself. Um, uh, composers I really admire, but then other artists on the panel as well that are really, really interesting and all really diverse backgrounds. That was actually the main draw. Yes, the fees was <laughs> great, that there was no application fee. Um, the There was great openness around... Um, you know, r submitting recordings, but also no need for the scores. To, it, it could be any kind of score. It could be um, if you wanted to just submit, you know, a one-page Word document ab about the recording, that was an option as well. So, um, you know, a lot. A, there's a lot of call f calls for scores out there mm. that still yeah. want the score um, and... They don't really specify or an openness towards graphic notation or prose scores or mm -hmm. things like that. Um, but actually, the main reason I applied was the, the panel. Mm -hmm. I just was kind of drawn to, to that. Yeah. Just to move back to John and Dave um, from, from sort of diversity of artists, a little bit more to the diversity of audiences, because I know that with both of your organisations, I mean, Dave, you, you were here in 2016, you spoke at our conferences, at our conference called The Listening Crowd, which was specifically about new music audiences. And I know that for Red Note, you've done a lot of research on this, as, as you've referenced, John. Can you just tell us a little bit about, I suppose, your work in that, in that way, Dave, in terms of trying to, you know, really develop audiences for, for the music? Well, I think we've done good work around developing audiences for contemporary music, and we have people who now are really interested in contemporary music, whether they came from never listening to any kind of classical music or coming from classical music to being engaged by today's voices. But we haven't done a good job of um, opening up our halls and our spaces, and we're in alternative spaces. We're not in you know traditional concert halls, so we have we think there's a kind of access to our halls. Mm -hmm. But we haven't done a good job of attracting an audience that looks like Vancouver. You know, Vancouver is uh, ethnically diverse, linguistically diverse. Uh, English is the lingua franca, but uh, Cantonese and Mandarin are the second and third languages, followed by Punjabi. And uh, we've our audiences look primarily of European background. You know, and I hope and believe that when people can see themselves on stage and hear their own stories and hear voices that that do sound like them, that they'll want to, they'll, they'll see a place for them in the concert hall. Um, but I, yeah, we, I, I would say we haven't, we haven't done a great job of that yet. And it's something that we're, you know, we have in our next strategic plan, in our current strategic plan that we're trying to develop. I'm hoping that our hypothesis that when we change who's on stage, it will change who's in the audience. I'm hoping that works, mm -hmm. but we'll see. John? I mean, uh, sorry, getting in. I think, I mean, there's a there's a big thing around this which we don't think about as contemporary musicians or haven't until very recently, um, which is, it, it sort of happened in musicology. I remember someone talking about old musicology and new musicology. Old musicology is, it has been A flat after the G. New musicology is, it was written because you're in this particular social situation, that was what was happening at the time. And we are forgetting, we often forget that music and the social situation, the physical situation says there's a dance between the two and they change each other. And it makes complete sense to me that 
um, if we're going to broaden diversity of our audiences, the music and the audiences will basically do a dance and we will hopefully kind of grow together in that. I have no difficulty with changing the social situation. The music is performed and I have no difficulty with music itself changing how it's performed and the rest of it because if we're going to, like David says, it's, not, it's about seeing yourself on stage. It's also about seeing yourself, your people you're comfortable next to in the audience. It's about actually finding new ways to make this, this actually possible so that it is actually part of people's lives. People use this music. That's the point. We use it. So we need to make sure that actually it is usable. Um, and I think you know, one of my jobs as a festival director or as an artistic director is to make sure that actually this music has a use. It's no longer useless music, which it pretty much has been up to now, to be completely honest, but that actually it has a social use, it has a social function, and it has the broadest possible social use and social function. Um, how we do that, that's the adventure as far as I'm concerned. Okay. I'm going to bring in our, our fifth panellists, who are yourselves, um, and uh, if anyone has any questions or comments we have just a little bit of time left um, before we need to wrap up we have four minutes i'm being told <laughs> precisely four minutes that's very precise keith um, to make comments or um question to to any of our um, wonderful panelists and who've just really been so generous in um your contribution and um, this afternoon jacinta how are you I'm a visual artist, but I, I go to a lot of concerts because my, my work is informed by music. Uh, recently, I applied for a, a studio and I was told that you had to be a political artist to get a studio. And I'm wondering, does, you know, do you think that musicians should be within that political sphere? You know, obviously, visual art is a separate entity but everything is connected and do you think that musicians should be political? Um, I think that when you're applying for something it kind of depends on the relationship between you as an artist and the person you're applying to right so like if it's something that's really valuable to you as an artist um, I feel like we don't always share the same values um, but I think that if you're if that's your strategy and you want to move forward with that then then that's a great way to go. I don't think that it's, it's necessary for everybody. Yeah, I think musicians should be political and they should be apolitical and they should be green and they should write fast music and they should write slow music. And in the same way that we've stopped allowing for great diversity of opinion in society at large, like let's just, let's allow for diversity in how human beings are human beings and let's celebrate and lift up each other. I, that, yeah, that's, I'm sorry that they kind of said that to you. Um, I guess when I hear things like that, that you have to be such and such an artist mm. or such and such a composer, um, like, I just see them as sort of corporate tools for um, programmers or curators to kind of just box you in. Um, so, I mean, I would, I would kind of, agree with David, it, you know, be whatever you want to be and be loose. But if you, you know, if you want to be political, that's fine. I mean, it's hard not to be these days apolitical. Um, but I kind of, I see a lot of descriptors before the name of an artist or a composer. I, it's just, it, it helps. It helps with just boxing everyone in, really. Yeah. 
Hi, um, I'm Patricia Flynn, um, and thanks very much for a very interesting uh, discussion. I just had a really quick question. Um, how useful do the panel feel a policy on diversity and inclusion is? I mean, I'm struck um, by what you were talking about in Scotland, that the um, when that came out, a lot of organisations uh, then made sure that that was uh, part of their operation. And I see that Sound and Music have brought out uh, fair access uh, standards uh, just quite recently. I'm just looking at it here on a phone. It's tiny, so I can't read it out, but they have standards to do with access um, application uh, money and conversation and there's various different standards in that. Is that a useful thing uh, for people who are trying to create uh, fair opportunities for composers, performers, um, inclusion for um, audience, inclusion for performers and, and composers as well? Um, from a practical perspective, it's extremely useful um, because it guides your organisation. And it's a touchstone that you go back to and you say, what well, we said we're going to do this, and we didn't do that. Or we did do this and then we did something else. Um, uh, I, th I think the policies are really useful. They are deeply ignorable if you have a company culture of deeply ignoring things. Um, but to be honest, if you say you're going to do something, you should hold yourself to it. So, you know, when we screw up, we screw up. When we don't screw up, we don't screw up. Um, one of the things I'm thinking about for uh, New Music Dublin is actually to try and have a, an equivalent EDI policy for next year's or, you know, as the company goes forward. Um, although it's not legislative and we can't necessarily hold anybody to it here, but you can hold people to it in Scotland. It's a legal thing. I think government policies rule our lives in so many ways, and it's good, you know, as citizens that we have uh, larger ideas that we share and follow. And so when people rail against these new policies around equity, diversity, and inclusion, I'm like, well, we didn't rail against the policies that prevented and were barriers to, to equity. So, you know, if, if, if there's a, a studio offering that's only for political artists and I, I'm not a political artist, I just don't apply there. And if I don't want to work in an environment that supports equity, diversity, and inclusion, then, then I shouldn't apply for that money. I just wanted to say as well that it's, it's about accountability too and the, the standards that you set for yourself and your organization that um, you, you can do a lot with what you have. We can't do everything, but it's, it's about working together. We're going to have to wrap it up there. I'm hugely grateful to those of you who made comments and asked those questions from the floor. I'm very grateful to our panelists John Harris, Festival Director of New Music Dublin, Co-Artistic Director of Red Note in Scotland. Eve O'Donnell, one of our own, but now with the National Sawdust in New York. Dave Pay on his second very successful visit to Ireland from Music on Main in Canada. And our very own Amanda Feary, who started the podcast ball rolling back in October. The very first guest on Amplify. And uh, as I said earlier, if you want to hear all past episodes or this episode, indeed, in a few weeks time when it comes out, cmc.ie forward slash Amplify is where you can find it. And uh, I'm very uh, grateful to, to John Harris and to John Pearson and all the team at New Music Dublin for their support in organizing this live recording of podcast. And of course, big thanks to Jonathan and to Kevin O'Connell for his wonderful, warm and engaging interview earlier. And to Keith Fennell, who's uh, hopefully got this in record. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> And uh, but uh, big sincere and uh, big thanks 
to you for coming along and joining us for this recording of Amplify. Thank you so much.